0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Doncef and a New Books Network host in Buddhist studies. Today, we are super lucky to have Professor David Wang from Duke University to talk with us about his new book, Moral Relativism and Pluralism, that's published with Cambridge University Press' Cambridge Elements in Ethics. This series, by design, combines the best features of books and journals to create a quick, concise publishing solution. So, Professor David Mong is a Susan Fox Becher and George D. Becher Professor of Philosophy. Before he came to Duke, he was the Harry Austrin Son Professor of Philosophy at Brandeis University and the John M. Fintley visiting professor of philosophy at Boston university. Um, So David Wong, for him, right, the main subject of his research can be summarized in seven themes. First, the nature and extent of moral differences and similarities across and within societies and how these differences and similarities bear on questions about objectivity and universality of morality. And second, The attempt to understand morality naturalistically as arising from the attempt of human beings to structure their cooperation and to convey to each other what kinds of lives they have found to be worth living. And third, the nature of conflicts between basic moral values and how these give rise to moral differences across and within societies. And four, how we attempt to deal with such conflicts in moral deliberation. Five, the relevance of comparative philosophy, especially Chinese Western comparative philosophy, including Confucianism, Taoism, Buddhism, um, to the above subjects. Six, whether our reasons to feel and act as are based solely on what we already desire, or whether reasons transcend what we desire, and are used to critically evaluate and shape our desires. And seven... The extent to which a person's recognizing that she has reasons to feel and act in a certain way can enter into the constitution of her emotions and change those emotions. So David is also author of many, many academic books and peer-reviewed articles, too many to uh, mention here. But welcome, David. Thank you so much for writing this super informative book. I really love the format of the Cambridge Element series. Following this format, right? your book is unfolds in 24 short digestible, but highly incisive chapters. Basically each chapter is only a few pages, but makes a very um, crystal clear presentation of one theme. It first presents a moral puzzle, an important yet unresolved issue that we all care about. And then you offer some new philosophical framings, and it shows us how this puzzle can at least partially be solved if we adopt these new frames. So, David, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional new books network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, like after writing so many academic books, etc. How and why you came to write this book on moral relativism and pluralism, and why this particular format?
0: Well, I appreciate your interest in my book, Jessica, and for your giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about it. Um, Actually, I wrote my PhD dissertation on moral relativism. And over the years, I've uh, responded to criticisms of my previous work, but also to new developments in the philosophy and uh, the related uh, human sciences that have prompted me to further develop my thinking. Some of my later thinking ...incorporated developments in the sciences that help us to explain why we have moralities. Uh, These developments include recent theories in biological and cultural evolution... ...that point to cooperation as fundamental to who we humans are as a species. And I took these developments to indicate that one of the primary functions of morality... uh, ...is to facilitate and regulate cooperation. But at the same time, uh, I continued another major research interest that has defined my career, uh, which is comparative philosophy, and in particular, classical Chinese philosophy, Confucianism, and Taoism, which you mentioned in the introduction. Much of uh, the theoretical work in philosophy on questions of relativism and pluralism has been surprisingly innocent of knowledge of the thought and moral practice of other cultures, which has always struck me as odd and embarrassing for the discipline, if not arrogant. So my work in ethical theory and in comparative philosophy has uh, become so increasingly meshed that I can't say now where one begins and the other leads off. Uh, My work On these matters is always in process, always evolving as I learn more and think more. This particular book format struck me as an opportunity to make my work more accessible to a wider audience, to include those who aren't ready to sit down and read a book of substantial length on the subject, which um, was my previous book, the 2006 Natural Moralities. Um, With this book, I took the um, opportunity to do one of the hardest things that authors can do, which is to dispense with the details that one puts so much blood and sweat into creating, and uh, which are addressed to other specialists in the field, but rather to force myself to identify what my main points are to get in there without ceremony and make these points as vividly and concisely as I can. Um, But in addition, because my work is always evolving, it's been a while since 2006, uh, I took the opportunity to introduce new thoughts that have emerged in recent years and further developments of old thoughts.
1: Thank you so much, David, for doing this. I have to attest that this book is very readable for a kind of a late person like me. Um, And I greatly appreciate your insight. So your book contains your answers to 24 moral puzzles. I don't think I can follow the traditional New Books Network format of going through chapter by chapter. So instead, please allow me to pick out the puzzles that fascinate me the most. And hopefully our conversations will give listeners a taste of your style and entice them to go read the chapters that I didn't select here. So in chapters one and two, you first lay out why some people worry about moral relativism and how your proposal of meta-ethical pluralism helps assuage such worries. To be honest, personally, I never feel any unease with moral relativism. That said, I do find the meta-ethical pluralism appealing precisely because it gives me some powerful tools to examine the validity of my own moral intuition. But for the benefit of listeners, please explain to us what is this meta-ethical ethical pluralism, and what is the moderate form of relativism or strong form of relativism? Those are the terminologies.
0: Yes, thanks, Jessica. The way moral relativism is usually framed as a view in moral philosophy is that morality is a matter of social convention. That is, our moral values are simply the ways we have decided to do things here, or a matter of one's subjective tastes. Uh, For example, some people feel strongly in favor of, say, traditional marriages, and that results in their moral judgments about the matter. Uh, But that's all there is to it. Well, I I think there's an understandable negative reaction to moral relativism defined in this way, because it seems so trivializing and uh, difficult to know what to do about our moral disagreements. Um, Unfortunately, The understandable negative reaction usually leads to the assertion that there is a single true morality, as if that was the only other view one could have. So, the way I begin the book is by suggesting that we hold on here and recognize that there are more possibilities than just two. We can rightly acknowledge that moral issues are the ones that we can discuss, give reasons to each other when we disagree and then go on to evaluate those reasons. Sometimes we even manage to change each other's minds. Now, I affirm that having such conversations is an integral part of our moral lives, but that doesn't mean that the conversation will necessarily convince us that there is one true morality, much less what it is. When I go on to argue in the book that the conversation should lead us to eliminate some moralities, as suitable for the way we human beings are, and for what we're trying to do with morality. However, my part of the conversation also attempts to persuade you, the reader, that there's more than one true morality. That is, there's more than one Bible way of life for us to live together. But on the other hand, not any way of life will do. Um, I go on to develop that view in the book, uh, but first attempt to persuade you, the reader, that if we were to identify what that single true morality is, it would be a very difficult task. It's difficult because more than one kind of moral value matters to us, and that our most serious moral perplexities result from trying to deal with occasions when important moral values seem in tension with one another, seem to force a choice on us that is not so easy To make, especially if we're trying to make that choice for everyone. That leads me to focus on a particularly important kind of tension between values that focus on the good of relationship and community on the one hand, and those concerning autonomy and individual rights on the other hand.
1: Thank you, David, for this very illuminating and concise explanation. So, personally, I struggle with my own conflicting moral values, but I doubt anyone would be totally consistent without such kind of um, ambiguities in terms of dealing with things like climate crisis, um, abortion, right? Um, So your point is that there are many multiple right solutions to pricing, sometimes intractable moral issues, but it's not like anything goes. It's not a total kind of absolute relativism. It's a bonded pluralism. So let's move on to my favorite chapters. From chapters three to seven, you explain to the readers two different paradigms of doing moral ethics. One is relationship-centered ethics as your own words, and the other is right or autonomy-centered moral ethics, which founded which fundamentally changed my own worldview. I always know that I don't worry about moral relativism but with these two paradigms laid out here clearly in your book i finally know why i don't worry at all my philosophical intuition is mostly process philosophy that means i see the world as you know events basic processes actions chains of actions etc because i'm trained first and foremost as theoretical physics and quantum physics can only make sense if you adopt such a processual worldview and later on of course now i do buddhist philosophy so it just reinforces that kind of a moral intuition, and of course, this kind of uh, um, in this kind of process or process or so worldview, moral concerns are mostly about relationships, connections, disconnections, recurring behavior patterns, collective actions. It's not about autonomy or rights, or maybe it's more accurate to say that autonomy or rights are only products of our actions and collective actions. So thank you for helping me understand myself better. But for the benefits of listeners, could you please explain what is this um, relation-centered model reasoning, and why we should should engage with them, and what are the consequences of ignoring this fundamentally different paradigm of doing philosophy?
0: Uh oh, thanks, Jessica. I uh, appreciate the connections you draw with um, process metaphysics, and uh, just as you said, you were trained in physics. Uh, <laughs> It, uh, it comes to mind to remark that my son-in-law is uh, both an astrophysicist um, and uh, a, a Buddhist layperson. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, th- th- there's another connection we have. Process um, uh, metaphysics is congenial with the classical Chinese view of the world. Um, But we can think of relationship-centered ethics as having a very high priority, uh, giving high priority to the good of human relationships, where typically the relationships are of care and respect that are embodied in activities we undertake with others. Um, Confucius, in the text most closely associated with him, the Analects, was asked by his students what he wanted most to do in his life. And uh, he answered, I would like to bring peace and contentment to the aged, to share relationships of trust and confidence with my friends, and to love and protect the young. Um, Taoist ethics reminds us that our relationships encompass the whole big world beyond the human. Um, And that finding right relationship with that world is, well, now more critical than ever before. So, why should we engage with such a relationship-centered ethic? Um, Well, even if we hold an ethic of autonomy and rights, we must ask how we are going to exercise our personal choice and... um, how we exercise our rights. In other words, what's the point of being free and being able to do what we want if we don't know what we want? Perhaps one of the most alarming things about our individual society here is that we often use whatever freedom we have to pursue things that at the end of our lives we might question as worth the fight and the toil we put into it. We might have things, but at the end, you, you can't take those things with you. We might have accomplishments, but who's going to remember them in a good way unless we contributed to the ongoing human community? Um, and that I think a lot of uh, research in uh, psychology and sociology has affirmed the satisfaction, the deep satisfaction that people take from relationship. One example is the Harvard study of adult development, uh, which followed people over decades of their lives, and uh, that finds that having community is a huge factor in maintaining one's health and happiness. So, one consequence of ignoring uh, a relationship-centered ethic is that we might regret what we've done with our lives. And we might regret for the whole of humanity if we don't get our relationships right with the world beyond the human. Um, and we're living through another set of consequences in American society in particular. We, ta- we can't talk with one another unless we're part of the same tribe. We've lost confidence in one another's goodwill. But what I've learned from Confucian ethics in particular is that it takes work to establish that confidence and attention to the small embodied details of interaction as well as to the grand intentions we might have. Another great line from the Analects is that harmony is not sameness. this. That is, we can make a better whole from our differences, but it takes a lot of work, especially with those who don't look like us or who don't think like us. So that's the short answer about relationships.
1: Well, thank you so much, David. This is just crystal clear. I just feel like the climate crisis, the uh, unfolding kind of uh, um, political divide really cause us to rethink, like maybe it's time for a different paradigm of you know engaging with moral ethics and maybe it's time I mean, at least the political issues and then the climate issues is not purely a technical issue. It's not a purely policy issue. We do need to engage in deeper moral, ethical, philosophical reflections. All right. In the interest of time, chapters eight to 10 moves to the meta level, where you ask readers to contemplate on what is morality how to understand why humans have moralities and why do we have moral ambivalence, and how answers to these questions link to a naturalistic conception of morality. So please share your insights with our listeners.
0: Um, So in the book I observed that a lot of contemporary moral philosophy supposes we can start with certain common sense assumptions about what morality is. Um, Unfortunately, the common sense of what philosophers think uh, may not correspond to um, what uh, people outside of philosophy think. One of the most frequently cited assumptions uh, philosophers cite is that morality is about objective facts, which, of course, leads to the rather quick conclusion that there is a single true morality. However, empirical study of people's lay attitudes about the objectivity of morality, this is some of the later research that I incorporate in this book, uh, some of this latest research is about their attitudes about the objectivity of morality. And these attitudes turn out to be much more ambivalent and complex. Uh, Turns out people think of moral disagreements as more or less objective depending on what the disagreement is. So, Opening gunfire on a crowd is viewed as pretty objectively wrong, but um, the morality of stem cell research or of abortion, not so much. One might see strong reasons that run in opposing directions on these latter issues, such as the value of new and potential human life versus the autonomy of the pregnant person to make the choice to continue or not. And one might come to doubt that there is a single correct answer. This is basically what I mean by moral ambivalence. Similarly, I think it's quite possible to feel ambivalent about a way of life that gives priority to the value of relationship, or the values of autonomy and individual rights, or ambivalence over a way of life that reverses that priority. I uh, begin the book with a story about what my mother said to me when I was young, that uh, she said that she didn't understand why Americans were so dedicated to the pursuit of their individual happiness. To her, the point of life was fulfilling one's responsibilities to others. That didn't mean she thought nothing of happiness, but to her, the kind of happiness that matters is one that is earned through making one's life Worthwhile and meaningful. And that's primarily through right relationship. However, I was one of the generation, one uh, in the generation born here in the US, and I could feel both sides of the argument. There was part that said yes to my mother, and the other part that says, well, gee, rather. And there are times when I like to do my things yeah. <laughs> So, it, that's to say, there are times when relationship can feel confining, uh, and there are various ways to deal with this kind of tension between relationship and autonomy. Emily, uh, really, I think uh, one result of my reading um, uh, lots of relevant sociology and anthropology is my realizing that, yeah, people have intelligently explore their options and have found ways to um, combine a degree of autonomy and the degree of relationship. Um, But that's the point, there is more than one way. And these different ways are found in different cultures and subcultures. Um, So I want to present a theory of what morality is that helps to explain why on the one hand, morality gives rise to conversations in which you get reasons to one another, and why on the other hand, those conversations sometimes lead to what I call moral ambivalence. One of the first things I suggested in this conversation with you is that primary function of morality is facilitating, regulated cooperation. Um, that is, we can understand why we humans have morality, because intricate, cooperation from the family to international organizations is the reason why we human beings came to dominate life on Earth. Unfortunately, sometimes to the detriment of that life, including ourselves. Um, But the point is that we're relatively unimpressive um, specimens of life until you take into account our capacity to intelligently cooperate with one another. And then we can really do wonderful things and very horribly destructive things. Um, we have a variety of ways to structure our cooperation with each other. And some of these ways will give greater emphasis to the value of relationships, whereas some of the other ways will provide individuals more room to make personal choices. That is, given the theory of morality as something human beings have developed to facilitate and structure their cooperation, uh, we can expect moral ambivalence to be a regular feature of our lives together because there are these different ways that we can cooperate with each other. Um, We can explain moral ambivalence on the basis of coming to view morality in this way, something that we have created as part of our culture um, for certain purposes, which places certain constraints on uh, how we can accomplish our ends. But in the end, there is more than one.
1: Thank you, David, for sharing this, um, your thoughts on these important meta issues. And I also figure like your answer kind of uh, um, is prescient toward my like next question. So, you know. If you feel there's too much overlap, you can skip the questions. But chapter 11 for me is another kind of the meta-issue that deserves our attention. So if we accept the premise that um, more, there is moral pluralism and agree that there are also constraints to acceptable um, moralities, then the ensuing question is more pragmatic, right? What should be the constraints on the range of uh, viable moralities? Some would say morality must be accepted on a voluntary basis without coercion or deception, that's page 29. And some others say morality should foster social cooperation that you just mentioned, that's page 30. And some also prefer reciprocity norm, also on page 30. And of course, the universalist will say, you know, there's one single correct balance um, based on objective facts. I mean, as a yoga this that sees everything out consciousness only, the Yuga Charing's take it just like, if you think there's objectivity, you have to prove why everything we know, everything we can ever know is always sifted to consciousness. Anyways, that's just me complaining about one single objectivity, uh, objective word out there. David, what's your take on this issue? Like how do we kind of um, think about what kind of moral morality to accept and then what are the constraints we should actually accept, not as like in antagonistic way, but in a collaborative way?
0: Yes. So let me take that opportunity uh, of your question to uh, summarize the the way I derive constraints on um, uh, what can be a true morality of uh, in order for morality to perform this function of facilitating and regulating cooperation, um, for one thing, moralities have to provide people with ways to balance their self interest with their concern for the welfare of others. Now, one of the the theory, scientific theories I've incorporated into this, this view of mine is that uh Recent theories of biological evolution uh, explain how our species uh, have adapted to the cooperative life through um, getting dispositions to care about the welfare of others. But at the same time, we retain our strong impulses for our own survival and reproduction. Cooperation often requires us to restrain how we act on our self concerned impulses in the interests of others. One moral norm that appears across cultures for a very good reason is a norm that requires us to reciprocate in some way the benefit that others confer on us. We don't necessarily have to return the benefit in equal fashion. Sometimes a thank you or a positive acknowledgement of what we receive to them can be sufficient to help them bear the cost to their self-interest. And I think this is one very important way in which uh, uh, an apt moral norm that helps us to cooperate with each other uh, helps us to manage potentially conflicting impulses within ourselves. Another constraint that limits the range of true moralities is that when some people subordinate others, they must do so in a way that can be acceptable to the subordinate without resource to force or deception. Slavery or gender subordination are practices that could not be accepted without force or deception. And for that reason, these practices fall outside the range of true realities. And third, the constraint that might surprise the reader is something I call accommodation. I argue that moral disagreement between people is ubiquitous. It's, it's part of what it is to, to have a human morality that people disagree how, about how to interpret and prioritize values. So if cooperation always depended on reaching complete agreement on our values uh, with, with those who disagree with us in some way, we could never get cooperation off the ground. Accommodation is the willingness to stay in constructive relationship with others despite one's disagreement with that. Uh, It may involve compromise with them or cooperating with them while agreeing to disagree on certain other matters. But accommodation may more broadly involve a willingness to listen and to consider why people hold the positions they do. That elemental form of respect for others can sometimes go a long way. Sometimes just showing that willingness to listen and not to automatically dismiss them simply because they disagree with you can set the relationship on a more positive course.
1: Thank you so much, David. This is just so helpful, especially on accommodation and willingness to stay and, you know, agree to disagree. But also, even when we critique, right, critique, constructive criticism is not the same as automatic dismissal, right? We have to start with respect and taking others seriously, including our disagreements seriously. So thank you for clarifying these tricky issues for readers. From chapter twelve onwards, I think I feel like we are moving back to the everyday level. No more meta issues, which is good for me. It's like there's too much climbing, um, but everyday issues are also messier stuff that concerns the like everyday choices we all have to make, and you know the kind of actions we have to take. So chapter twelve is about whether morality as social construction comes from the individual or groups. Chapter three for me is interesting because it's very pragmatic when people disagree on moral issues. Are they really disagreeing about the same thing or about actually some other imagined false beliefs about others? And I read chapter 14 as a suggestion of a kind of good practice for people to keep an open mind. Of course, everyone, including myself, like to see um, ourselves as open-minded. But here scholars are still trying to figure out, like, what is the bar? What is the definition, you know, the standard for being open-mindedness? Some set the bar really high. To be open-minded means that we need to have this moral competence to recognize that people might legitimately occupy totally different moral worlds that are mutually unintelligible. Page 41. But they you take a different position. You are m- much more optimistic. And you, you know, also for you to avoid getting stuck in one's own moral universe, you recommend that we all need to take seriously inquire into at least one serious moral revolt or own best interpretation or to one's best own interpretation of one's own moral tradition, also on page 41. So what do you think? is the bar for being open-mindedness. And then, you know, what should that be? And then what, why this particular uh, recommendation of taking like at least one rebel moral system and what is the m- benefits of learning from moral positions that's just like, for me, it sounds so repulsive. Why should I waste my time on it? Right.
0: Right. Um, so some other relativists do argue for relativism on the grounds that others live so differently think so differently that we can't even make sense of how and why they're living as they do. Uh, And of course, I think that's a very pessimistic conclusion because then we can't learn anything from them. If we can't understand them, we can't learn anything from them. Uh, And just as importantly, we can't talk with them. We can't relate to them. Um, But I think as I've indicated earlier, That our hardest moral disagreements involve values we hold in common. It's true we disagree on how to interpret them and which values should have priority in difficult situations. But usually, I think we can come to understand the sides to the question other than our own side. Um, My own situation with respect to the values of relationship and autonomy are examples. I'm not the only one who especially in the U.S., who grew up in a hybrid, culturally mixed world. And in fact, this is more the norm than the exception. Um, But sometimes it is not so easy to understand, especially when people have a stake in holding that they're the ones who are right and the others are wrong. And I understand why it can be difficult to let go of that stake. But what we have to gain is that a sense of more possibilities. And perhaps some of these possibilities are ones that we can come to realize and appreciate once we live them. Uh, In our present American society, I think we can benefit from paying more attention to our relationships because we're having a hard time addressing our problems right now. Even if what's primary concern involve rights, um one problem we're having now is taking other people's rights seriously <laughs> we, we usually have no problem taking our own rights seriously <laughs> and demanding that others respect our rights but we are now so often coming into collision with other people and the way they assert their rights that um it's it's hard to make all these rights coexist with each other. Uh, and I think that uh, one way out of this difficulty is to recognize that underlying the rights we hold is our relationship to each other. Uh, it's partly a virtue of our relationship with each other that we can come to care about each other's rights. Um, so uh, I think other than, we can if there's still conflicts between the way we interpret or prioritize our values we may find it easier to accommodate each other and reach some way of working together and addressing the, the really serious existential problems we face now
1: thank you david this is very informative um so I actually share your optimism that we can learn from our differences, even if that difference is about our different moral values or views about what counts as like human rights, um, those messy issues. Um, and also, in interest of time, I'm going to skip all the other chapters and directly go to Chapter 19. And truth be told, those are the very controversial chapters. Um, they deal with very messy, story issues. They are super important, but I also feel like we can just debate about them endlessly. So I'm not going to do that in this short podcast. Um, I just highly recommend listeners to get this book and check out those chapters and do some mental gymnastics on your own. It's really fun. But let's work on chapter 19. Why normative moral relativism cannot be um, a simple matter of letting others be. So please, David, explain to our listeners, why cannot we just like let each other speak? Isn't this what a free world should look like? We are free individuals, right?
0: It's, Jessica. Um, the short answer is that our lives are so interdependent that we can't just say, well, if you feel that way, just live that way. Although much of the time you're living that way affects how I live my life. <laughs> or affects the lives of people I care a lot about. Even even letting people be free to make their choices has consequences for the people who don't make those choices, who have no power over our choices. Um, People in the developing world are now experiencing the consequences that we in the developed world have made for hundreds of years. Um, And... They literally had no choice to experience those consequences. The climate crisis is a prime example of that, where um, the U.S. in particular uh, is uh, costly responsible for the the warming that people are experiencing now and will for decades afterwards. Um, And we we didn't ask them, is that okay? <laughs> um, um and and that's uh, that is a problem that um, uh with the kind of relativism that is too easy, which is kind of live and let live relativism. Uh it's to neglect the fact that um we're too interdependent. Uh and moreover it's the neglect the the function that morality has in the world that is to help us cooperate with each other so um we can't just say well can live my way you can do yours and that's really uh not fulfilling the what what uh, the reason was for morality in the
1: many thanks david and personally I also wonder, like, maybe one reason that we cannot just let others be is that most of the pressing issues today, the impending climate disasters, structural racism, sexism, economic inequality, um, I mentioned sexism. So we're living a deeply unethical world. We actually, to fix those those problems, to deal with the fires that we inherited, we need all hands on deck. Otherwise, we die as species, which might be good for our planet. It's a lonely planet after all, and definitely good for many other species. But as a human being myself, I will feel a little bit sad if we go distinct. Anyways, anyhow, chapters 20, 21, 22, again, very practical moral exercises on genital cutting, abortion, and how not to demonize others. Again, hot topics again, I highly recommend readers to get this book and read and think about those puzzles on your own and maybe talk with some of your friends, on uh, how they think and learn from each other's differences. In the interest of time, I want to focus on chapter three, where David, you raise an intriguing question, I'd say um, a policy proposal maybe. What if if we institutionalize the idea of people coming together to explore how they might deal with their moral differences and find ways to accommodate each other? Accommodation is like your key here, right? And for me, it sounds like a kind of a collective talks therapy. (laughs) But you give us concrete evidence that actual cases where these kind of talk therapy on policy issues actually bring people together and make social change. So please tell listeners more about this proposal.
0: All right, thanks. Um, What I point to towards the end of the book uh, are experiments in genuine ground level of democracy where people are brought together to discuss the hardest issues that confront us. such as the ones you mentioned. Uh, They're being asked to be respectful, to listen to each other. They receive thoughts from experts on the issue but the main action is their discussion with each other. Um, And in some of these experiments, uh, real things can happen as a result of their discussion. The uh, Irish Citizens' Assembly, for example, is uh, an institution that uh, was set up to deal with uh, really heavy-duty issues uh, arising in Ireland, uh, which are very familiar to us. Uh, Some had to do with um, the constitutional ban on abortion, Uh, uh, and uh, uh, people were brought together to, to talk about that. Uh, another issue was same-sex marriage, um, and on these two issues, um, the Irish Citizens Assembly uh, voted with decisive majorities after discussion uh, to uh, to legalize abortion and to uh, have legalize same-sex marriage, um, and uh, the. The more remarkable thing is that uh, people were able to talk with each other in, in a respectful fashion. Perhaps because uh, something real was at stake. Uh, they weren't just asked to talk with each other. They they uh, they knew that um, uh, the legislature in Ireland was going to receive their recommendation. Uh, they knew that um, the broader public uh, was going to be given use of what their decision was and they were given opportunities to um, communicate and interact with the wider public um, So in these on these occasions when people actually are given a real job um, they can um, they show themselves up to the task and there's a real, Uh, contrast with the posturing and grandstanding of politicians when you know what they're really doing is playing to their um, supporters and constituencies um, and not really engaging in anything we would think of as serious deliberation. Um, And so part of this is a way of saying if if, uh, if our democracy isn't working right now, um, it's partly a ground-level problem. It's that um, we've really made uh, the vast majority of people these spectators and, um, at best, fans of uh, of a sport, uh, a blood sport. And um, it's then it's not surprising that people act like fans. They root for their team. Uh, They get a charge when their team wins. They get depressed when their team loses. Um, But they don't bother to really try to figure out um, what the the issues are and to educate themselves on the issues to try to understand why there might be different points of view. Because really, they don't have an uh, incentive to put in the time uh, to to become knowledgeable about these things because their vote is just one vote, often in a system that uh, counts their votes unequally, especially here in the U.S. Um, so in a way, uh, I think that in a strange way, I... I I'm going back to the Confucian point that um, you can make harmony out of differences, but it's a lot of work. You have to set the stage for it. You have to um, create a, a social context in which people are um, given a serious job to do um, and they are encouraged to act in ways towards each other that will um, dispose them to to listen to one another, to take each other's views into account, and to know that uh, it will make a difference. Um, so, uh, these are um, uh, uh, these are experiments in uh, what are sometimes called mini publics. Uh, uh, to to randomly uh, select uh, citizens uh, uh, to come together and to discuss these really, really serious serious issues. Um, a number of us in the US have had some experience that with that uh, from juries being on juries. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I um, ended my third stint of jury duty since I've come to Durham and. Uh, yeah, it wasn't always fascinating, uh, but I came out of there with respect for my fellow jurors. Um, that they came from very different walks of life. Um, they, in in some ways, spoke different languages and had different concerns uh, than I I typically do. But uh, I got to it to know them and respect them, uh, and and uh, appreciate the kind of wisdom they brought to the, the issue. Um, uh, uh, I think that those are very concrete ways in which we can start to live um, like when I was trying to recommend in, in the book.
1: Thank you, David. I think those are just um, very evidence-based, but also informed by philosophy um, kind of a suggestions. And then um, it's just surprising to me that Irish is such a deeply Catholic country, actually legalized abortion, same-sex marriage by, you know, involved citizens, right? commoners, to democratically deliberate on um, things that matter to them, that they know what they think actually will have um, consequences, right? And that shows like some problems of American democracy. It's very broad democracy, but it's very shallow. We only got to vote once per time. And then most of the rest of year, year, um, I don't know, most of the rest of four years, just like spectator sports, right? So that's some structural issues that we can actually do something to fix. So, David, we've taken a lot of your time now. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here, but you would like to highlight for the listeners and readers?
0: Uh, You've done a a really great job covering the the major points of the book. There, there's just maybe I thought one thing that uh, I could point to, uh, uh, which is a a fairly new feature of the book, uh, uh, apart from my previous work, which is a. I've come to realize that um, um, when we're discussing these meta issues about morality, that is there's this this distinction made in philosophy between uh, meta ethics and normative ethics. Normative ethics is when we're trying to determine what the right thing to do is. Uh, Meta ethics is uh, a more abstract, endeavor in which we're asking ourselves questions as such as, what is morality anyway? And uh, is there a single true morality? We're not uh, saying what the true morality is, but we're asking these more um, abstract meta questions. But I came to realize that if we're going to ask, what reason do we have to seriously investigate other moral traditions? Um, it's in great part an ethical question we're asking. What ethical reason do we have to investigate these other uh, traditions? As you say, as you said earlier, it, it isn't an investment in your time, so <laughs> why bother? Um, and in part, I think it's, especially for those of us in developing countries and um with the degree of education and leisure to ask these very intellectual questions, uh, however meaningful they may be to us, um, we have benefited from the exploitation of others. Uh, in some cases, it's been the exploitation of our own. <laughs> I in the book, of, because I mentioned uh, the the way that the Chinese were. Treated when they first came to this country. Um, I mean, there's that extreme amount of uh, exploitation uh, involved there. Um, but at the same time, someone like me has been the beneficiary of how our situation has evolved. And um, some of that, while the universities I uh, I went to. Uh, as a graduate student and the one I teach at now, uh, these have uh, in various ways benefited from the slave economy in previous uh, eras of US history. Uh, and so uh, I too have indirectly benefited from this. Um, so it's hard to extract oneself uh, from the normative, the ethical questions that pertain to why we should bother. Why we should bother trying to understand, for example, relationship oriented ethics that are very much uh of the the developing world. Um uh it's it's when 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 countries reach the level of affluence and power, then they can afford much more talk of Rights, um, individual rights, um, uh, but the the ground from which uh, human culture originally arose was much more relationship oriented than um, than it is now in much of the developed world, uh, and I would argue that we've gone too far in this direction. Uh, which is part of the reason why we're having a lot of trouble working with each other. Um, I would, so I, I guess I want to emphasize that uh, to the context of, of a lot of the theory I do in the book um, is ultimately rooted in um, my sense of the ethically urgent, uh, What we have strong reason to engage in.
1: Thank you, David. So, for me, you just like summarize very clearly the question of what is the task and responsibility of scholars, academics. And we are part of the mycelium kind of network, moral network of the, the whole planet. So, we can't just extract ourselves and then, mm. you know, play our own games. It's not a game. What do we do as scholars actually matters. So um, before we part our race, last question. Um, this traditional New Books Network question, what are you working on now? What keeps you busy?
0: Yes, thanks Jessica. Um, one of my current projects is um, turning into another book, um, a series of lectures that I delivered to National chungchi University at Taiwan um, and these were lectures about uh, metaphors and analogies in Chinese uh, early Chinese thought, um, the Confucian and Taoism in particular. Um, uh, I argue that metaphors and analogies are really a basic, perhaps the basic form of human thought, and um, that we have reason to, re- to, to renew our engagement with them. Uh, In fact, they're used in science all the time, Um, um, but uh, I think that we can um, turn them to thinking about um, uh, how to organize ourselves internally as individuals. One of the questions to which the the early Chinese philosophers addressed themselves is, uh, well, how should we think of ourselves? I mean, are we made of various parts? And if we are made of various parts, how should the parts be organized? Um, should there be a part of the person that is the leader? Now, that was, in fact, what the Confucians thought. They thought that um, the, the part that should be the leader of the person is, in fact, the what they call the heart-mind, the all um, mm-hmm. What what would be for us in English the mind, but definitely the mind that also feels as well as thinks and reasons. Um, Now they had uh, extremely interesting ideas about uh, uh, how the heart mind itself is organized, and uh, uh, in these lectures I point out that there's a more holistic conception of how. Reasoning and emotion are interconnected; uh, they're they're not separated from each other, and it's not that one should dominate the other, but they should be mutually connected. The emotion informing thought and thought informing emotion. Um, that's what I mean by uh, a holistic relationship between these functions of the heart mind. But then the so. And and this also goes into their conception of how state and society should be organized because, as you may know, the Confucians uh, had a kind of meritocratic conception of who should be the leaders of state and society. Those who have developed their competence and virtue the most should be the leaders in the society. Um, So there's this kind of correspondence between their conception of the intrapersonal organization of the person and the interpersonal social and political organization. Um, and um, there are a number of benefits to that and but ways in which it could be criticized. And then I addressed the way that the Taoist, Zhuangzi, criticizes that. Uh, and uh, he starts with the the internal organization of the person. And he questions whether the, the heart-mind with its reasoning in particular um, isn't overly committed to a certain way of viewing things, uh, that we get rigidly committed to a certain way of making sense of the world. Um, and he advocates instead opening up to various ways of viewing the world that maybe different people have, and but also which are demonstrated by the fact that different species, different species of animals, have different ways of perceiving the world. Um, and he asks us to be open to the possibility that we may gain new information uh, by being open to different uh, ways of viewing the world. And this is connected to his disagreement with the Confucians over whether the heart-mind should be as dominant within the person as um, the Confucians think it should. Uh, Maybe there are ways in which the body, in our interactions with the world, are sources of information and different ways of understanding the world that are conscious, deliberative reasoning, reflective selves, they they don't have access to that. And perhaps there should be even more holism within the person that integrates our embodied ways of interacting with the world. Um, And so uh, I discussed that, and then uh, this relates to what we were just discussing, um, many publics and so forth, Because, in a way, transferred to the social and political realm, uh, this critique of uh, a meritocratic elite leading everything uh, bids us to look into the possibility that um, maybe there are other people outside the elite who have things they know and things they can uh, contribute that would really help us out with our problems. Um, uh, so there's the interpersonal but social and political correlate to taking a much more radically holistic view of um, how the person should be organized just as um, we should bring the embodied parts of ourselves more closely into relationship with our conscious reasoning ourselves Um, so perhaps we should bring uh, all kinds of people who have had different experiences of the world into conversation on our common problems. So that's a little bit about my current project and how, it, in fact, it kind of, in some ways, is continuous with uh, with uh, this book that we've just been discussing.
1: I'm totally intrigued as you were speaking. Like, there's so many sparks just like lights up in my in my head, like. The black radical traditions always talk about the body the embodied experiences embodied consciousness um you know there's the um the sense that we humans are not masters of the universe we need to learn probably from other species as well so many things but ah, oh, gosh Thank you so much for your time here and for writing this amazing book and for sharing many insights that we really have to process further. And I highly recommend Um, you get the readers, listeners get this book and read it periodically, reread it. But I'm also looking forward to reading your next book very soon. And before we leave, just a reminder for my listeners or listeners, so those of you who are interested in engaging with a totally different sort of moral ethics of different ways, different paradigms doing, um, you know, moral reasoning. Um, but those of you who want to think about meta ethical issues, start with this book. You will not be disappointed. So thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.
0: Jessica, thanks for um, so closely reading my book and for all of the great questions.